Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was because this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Reed. Uh, it's a joy to be able to have another Reed in the church. So thank you, Reed, for, for being our scripture reader. Appreciate that. Uh, well, good to see you, uh, church. My name is Reed, and I have the joy of being one of the pastors here on the Olathe campus of Christ Community. And um, if you're new, if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. I'd love the chance to meet you, to get to know you. Uh, but as we continue in worship together, as we turn to God's word, uh, I want to pray for our time together. So let's take a moment uh, to pray. Father in heaven, you are the creator of everyone and everything. Lord, you have given yourself to us in the person of Jesus, the word made flesh. And Lord, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit that is in us, among us, for those who are in Christ, that we would receive and hear from you afresh this beauty, this mystery, this profound truth that the God of highest heaven has condescended and entered into our world to be with us and for us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, so to speak, stand in my body in this moment. Would you speak with my mouth, think with my thoughts, so that we might hear from you afresh. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen. Churches are filled with people who don't actually believe what they believe. These were words said to me by a very dear friend of mine, Uh, a friend of mine who I've known for for years, a friend who has influenced and shaped me in significant ways, a friend of mine who I love and respect, a friend who still forms and shapes me to this day, a friend who in many ways knows the Bible and the ways of Jesus better than I do, and he is a friend who currently is wrestling with and struggling with the veracity and the validity of the Christian faith. And and much of my friend's recent wrestling has more to do with his frustrations or the, the dissonance and the inconsistencies he sees within the Christian church. The frustration that he sees in the the infighting, the individualism, the identity politics, and the indifference that so many Christians seem to have towards important issues in our culture. In this conversation, my, my dear friend went on to say to me, if people believed that God came and lived among us as a person and rose from the dead, their lives would look drastically different. And friends, I, I can't say I, I, I don't disagree with him. If we, if we believe this truth, if this is what we proclaim, then our lives should reflect that truth, that mystery, that 
glory. Now, I want to be very clear, too. I am not of the persuasion, uh, the very popular persuasion in our day, that, that Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, are top to bottom the problem with the world today. It's, uh, evangelical Christians tend to be kind of a, a very popular punching bag in our day. But neither am I of the persuasion that any of these critiques, that none of these critiques hoisted against the church have any validity whatsoever. I, I believe there's, there's a word for the church to listen in the moment we are in. And so church, the question for us is, do we actually believe what we believe? If you are a follower of Jesus, a worshiper of the word made flesh, do we actually believe what I believe? Do we actually believe what we believe? And, and I'll ask personally, do I believe what I believe? Do I practice what I preach? Now, if you're, if you're new with, with us in church, we, we've begin, we began our series in the gospel of John, the word made flesh. And as we continue to hear from the words of Jesus in John's gospel, um, my prayer is that it would confront us, that we would be confronted and challenged and comforted by this mysterious and powerful truth that the word of God has been made flesh. And, And I'm throwing myself into the mix as I say this, as we seek to be confronted lovingly so by these words that have a word for us. And my prayer is that as we do listen to the word preached, that we would seek to not simply give intellectual assent to these words, but irreplaceable allegiance to the word made flesh. Amen? That's, that's my hope and prayer. Not just intellectual assent, but irreplaceable allegiance to the word made flesh. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John 1. That's where we'll be camped out together, whether paper or digital. Or if you have the whole thing memorized, that's great. But uh, we're going to be in John 1. And as we turn to John's prologue, uh, the first thing I want to bring our attention to is this. The mystery that we behold. As we look at the Word made flesh, the eternal, infinite God made as a human, brought into reality as a human in the person of Jesus, we first see the mystery we behold. In J.I. Packer's timeless work, Knowing God, uh, he puts forth this assertion that I think is very accurate about the incarnation. And the incarnation is just a fancy word to describe the doctrine of God becoming a human. And Packer goes on to say this, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, Jesus' crucifixion, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. And I think he is spot on. To declare that the infinite, eternal, uncreated, glorious God of all things entered into time and space as a human being is quite literally out of this world. It is quite literally out of this world. And and if this is a truth that we proclaim and don't just give intellectual assent to but irreplaceable allegiance to, then it should radically transform how we live and view and how we move and have our being. And so John beautifully, powerfully, poetically declares to us these words in chapter, chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult doctrine to grasp, to comprehend, to get our minds wrapped around. However, the fact that something is difficult or complex, or confusing, or even seemingly paradoxical, which it is, it does not invalidate its veracity, its truthfulness. 
In fact, it is the mysterious nature of the incarnation of God-made man that compels us to worship. If we were able to figure out the vastness, the beauty, the mystery of God, he would cease to be an object of beauty worthy of worship and thus cease to be God. It is in the mystery that we behold in the incarnation that compels us to see God as an object worthy of worship and thus our allegiance. Again, church, the incarnation is first and foremost a mystery we behold. Because in Jesus, we see the personification of the presence of God, the one who cannot be contained, who does not live within houses made by humans. Because within, in the Old Testament story, what we see is that the temple, the temple was this place, this dwelling place of God's presence. It was a symbol of God's presence with his people, which is why John it's kind of what he means when he, when he says these words, that the word of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that word dwelt, it literally means to tabernacle, to, to pitch one's tent in the midst of a community. Or as, as Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase, the message beautifully says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. It's this idea of nearness, of presence. Throughout uh, John's prologue and in his gospel, we see this, this imagery of of temple language. This language of the tabernacle is a picture of God's presence with his people. And so when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's saying something about Jesus personifying, being the presence of God with us. Again, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the subsequent temple were symbols of the presence of God. They were the places God's people went to encounter God. But in, in Jesus, what we see is that God is going to his people to be with them. The presence of God is no longer sequestered to holy places and holy times. Through Christ, God has come to be with us in all of life, now and forever, by means of his spirit. Which means that if you are in Christ, whatever space you inhabit at any moment is holy, sacred ground. For the one who is the holy presence of God is with you at all times. And so as you walk into Chipotle later today after church for lunch, you are in holy ground. Not just because it's Chipotle, that is holy ground. But, but truly, what, what I mean is that when you, when you enter into history class tomorrow morning, you are in holy ground if you are in Christ. As you await results from your doctor, you are in holy ground. As you are standing in line at the grocery store, you are standing upon holy ground. The word made flesh who dwelt among us is the mystery we behold. But as John continues to show us in the prologue, we see that Jesus as the word made flesh is also the miracle we need. He is the mystery we behold, but we also see he is the miracle we need. Jesus, the word of God made flesh, is a display of both the glory of God and the grace of God. Listen to what John says in verses 16 and 17. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, this grace upon grace is not just seen in the giving of God's presence. It's absolutely seen as that. The grace of God in coming to be with us is on display here. But what we also see is the gracious fulfillment that Jesus brings of the Mosaic law. The the demands and the commands put upon God's covenant people to be holy as he is holy, demands that we cannot fulfill, are fulfilled in the person and the work 
of Jesus. Because notice what John says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be really careful. As we, as we put our Bibles together, as we learn how to read the Bible faithfully, we need to make sure that what, what John isn't doing, John is not pitting Moses and the Old Testament up against Jesus in the New Testament. That is so often how we read the Bible. Like, there's this common view in the church and outside the church that the, the way we kind of read the Bible is that in the Old Testament, God was angry and mean, and then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and God finally becomes a Christian. Like, that's kind of the view of the biblical storyline. That's not, that's not the truth. What, what John is saying in connecting Jesus to Moses, he's not saying, well, okay, so Moses had the law, and that was bad, and Jesus has grace. He's showing, no, it's, it's a continuation of grace displayed to us even in the giving of the law. Theologian Andreas Kostenberger, you sound just way smarter even saying his name, but, but, but he says this in describing this idea of the Mosaic law and Jesus being the fulfillment of it. He says, rather than offend the gospel's Jewish audience, this verse in particular is designed to draw the Jewish audience in. He kind of uh, paraphrases, he says, if you want an even more gracious demonstration of God's covenant love and faithfulness, the evangelist tells his readers, it is found in Jesus Christ. The incarnation is a miracle that we need because in it we see God becoming human in order to accomplish for us what the Mosaic law could never accomplish, namely our redemption, our ability to restore the relationship of God's presence with us. This was not within the power of the law to do, for we do not possess that power and ability as sinful, broken people. The law of Moses was given to not only show God's standard of holiness, but to reveal to us simultaneously how desperate we are in need of rescue. That's how we put our Bible together. That is why John says that the law came through Moses. Grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. This is what the law accomplishes, to show us God and to show us our sin and thus our need for him. In this way, the law of Moses in part, hear me, in part, functions like an MRI machine. What does an MRI machine do? It helps reveal brokenness and sickness and illness within us that we may not see at times. We may feel it, but it is hard to identify. Now, does an MRI machine do anything to actually provide healing to said brokenness, illness, and sickness? No. It's still a grace. It is still a good thing. We are thankful for for MRI machines, but it does nothing in bringing restoration. But the good news, friends is that God has not simply come to, to just give us an MRI and to show us the results. Like, it looks pretty bad, doesn't it? But rather what we see in the Word made flesh is that God has come in the person of Jesus as the Word made flesh, fully God and fully man, in order to heal the brokenness that the MRI machine of the Mosaic Law reveals. That's the full story of Scripture. Fully man in order to, sympathetic, to, to sympathize, to suffer, and to be the sacrifice of sin. To be fully man, Jesus is able to do these things, sympathize with us, suffer with us, and be the sacrifice for sin. Being fully God, that death upon the cross is able to be fully sufficient to be the payment of our sin. Both are necessary. Both must be together for the miracle we need. In fact, this is... More beautifully said than I could say, but Cuban theologian Justo Gonzalez perfectly captures this miracle that we need in these words. He, referring to Jesus, must be divine. 
for otherwise his suffering has no power to redeem, and he must also be human, for otherwise his suffering has nothing to do with ours. And the two must be joined in such a way that his true humanity is neither destroyed nor swallowed up in his divinity. This is why grace upon grace comes through Jesus. Because in the gospel, we find the blessings of God's abundant love and mercy towards us, given to us in the sending of his son. The one who is able to bring God's presence near to us by casting our sins far away from us in offering himself as the sacrifice of our sins once and for all. Amen? I've talked with some of you here at church and I've heard an interesting desire to say, I, like, I, I would like to say amen. I really would love to do that. I, I'm excited and I'm eager to do it, but I'm a little bit nervous. So I'm going to try this again. One who is able to bring God's presence near to us in casting our sins far away from us is Jesus, the word made flesh. Amen? amen. There it is. Church is happening right now. There, no, so, so I want to be very, very clear. This is not just, again, a doctrine we give intellectual assent to. It is a truth that we give irreplaceable allegiance to. And there is no hope. I want to be very clear, unequivocal about it. There is no hope for forgiveness, rescue, and true transformation without the word of God made flesh. For he is, again, the mystery we behold. He is the miracle we need. But if we just stop there, church, we are not seeing the fullness of what this truth declares to us. Because in the word made flesh, we also see the model we follow the model we follow. The word of God made flesh is not merely a prerequisite doctrine that we believe in order to go to heaven. It is not necessarily or just simply a variable in the equation of our salvation. It is no less than that. Hear me. It is no less than that. But what we see in the incarnation is the manifestation of the father's love, his eternal love for his son that has existed from before the beginning of time, overflowing into creation and upon his beloved, which is us. And no small part of that love of the Father for his Son that overflows into creation is seen in God drawing near to us in order that he might sympathize with us. As a family, we have used the New City Catechism. We, we, we love this resource, and as we try to kind of learn and teach uh, theological truth to our, to our entire family, and I would recommend it to you if, you. if you have kids, if you don't have kids, whatever, if you're, if you're a human, if you have a heartbeat, I recommend this resource to you. But, but like all catechisms, it's in question-answer format. And question 22 says this, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And they, they go along with these songs, and so it's hard for me to read this without hearing the song. That in human nature, he might on our behalf. So, so I won't sing the whole thing for you, just a little teaser. But that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. Do you see how there is both forensic language and feeling language in why the Messiah must be human? forensic language in saying that he is sufficient to be the penalty, to pay the penalty for our sin, but also so that he might be able to feel the pain of our sin as the one who is fully God and fully human. Church, we must declare the full deity of Jesus, the word of God, but let us never, never do so at the expense or the minimization of Jesus's full humanity. For when we do, not only do we lose the gospel, but we lose the fullness of what it means to be his followers. 
For in his humanity, we find our ability to see God seeing us. Or more to the point, we see him suffering with us. And to this point, uh, Huso Gonzalez again beautifully describes this picture of what it means that the Messiah, being fully God and fully man, suffers with us. And, and in this context, he's speaking specifically to how the incarnation profoundly speaks to uh, Hispanic communities, but, but this is, it resonates with anybody who has suffered in life. And he says this, A disjunction between divinity and humanity in Christ would destroy the greatest appeal of Jesus for those who must live in suffering. The suffering Christ is important to Hispanics, in particular here, because he is the sign that God suffers with us. An emaciated Christ is the sign that God is with those who hunger. A tortured Christ is the sign that God is with those who must bear the stripes of an unjust society. In the mystery and the beauty of the word of God made flesh, we see the God of highest heaven sympathizing with us, feeling with us, not just suffering for us, but suffering with us. But in him, what we also find is the power to emulate his sympathetic and compassionate nature in suffering with and for others. We see the power of the one who drew near to social outcasts and sinners and who made their problems his problems, who moved into their neighborhood and adopted their problems, who came not simply declaring the good news of the kingdom, but who came displaying it through his compassion and care for those in need. And so church, what this means is that the embodied nature of Christ as the incarnate word of God, what it communicates to us in part is the wide scope of God's mission in this world of redeeming and restoring all things. What we see in the incarnation as God becomes a material being in the person of Jesus, in part what we see is that God is showing us that he cares about our material existence. And we so often, especially in the church, we so often separate the spiritual and the physical as if we we aren't this psychosomatic unity of spirit and body. As one theologian put it, by the very act of assuming our flesh, becoming human, God sanctified it and made it holy. One reason for why Jesus became a human body to suffer with us was to model for us the way of his kingdom in suffering with others. This is why this is absolutely a doctrine that that mystifies us, that, that leads us to worship. It is a miracle that we need to be redeemed and restored to God, but it is also a model for us to follow. And church, as we think about the implications of what it means to live out and follow this model of an incarnational way of living, one of the unique opportunities we have in our day is to suffer alongside, care for, and love our foreign neighbors in our community. Not just, I mean, we've talked about how we have an opportunity, a beautiful opportunity, we've had a beautiful opportunity to love and care for our Latino neighbors in Olathe, but specifically as we see the growing number of refugees coming to Kansas City, there is a unique opportunity we have. And I believe this is an opportunity for the church to be the church, to show the world the goodness and the glory of Jesus, the word of God who moved into the neighborhood and made our problems his problems. I shared this a few weeks ago, but the, the Barna group was here in Kansas City back in the fall, and in some of their study, they showed the, the, the state of the church and the, the city of Kansas City, and one of their findings was this, 90% of churchgoers in Kansas City believe that their church cares about what's happening in their community, compared to only 54% of non-churchgoers 
Now, this doesn't mean that, therefore, 54% of church uh, goers actually care about the needs of their community, but this is how the church is perceived by the public. According to LifeWay research, we've shared this before, only 12% of evangelical Christians uh, admit that their views on the arrival of refugees and immigrants in their communities is primarily informed by the Bible. Only 12%. So what that means is that the vast majority of evangelical Christians are being formed, shaped, and discipled about immigration and caring for our foreign neighbors by something other than the eternal word of God. Similarly, a Pew Research study from 2018 found that 25%, getting really specific here, of white evangelicals believe that the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees. This was the lowest percentage of any group that was surveyed. Now, I want to be very clear again. As a white evangelical, there's, there's no denying my identity in that. I know it is easy and common to hoist critiques against an entire demographic. And I know that just because we are an evangelical church doesn't mean that we necessarily reflect this data. But family, we would be foolish, we would be naive, and we would be arrogant if we did not even consider and do some introspection around what this data is saying. Because church, if you, are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you believe that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, was, was God incarnate, fully God and fully man, the divine in human form, the Word made flesh. And if we, have, if we have received this truth, if we rejoice in this truth, and if we relay this truth, then by God, we ought to reflect this truth. It should be a whole total picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And when I say we ought to reflect, that ought is not an obligation. It is not a duty. It is an outflowing of what it means that we have received the love of God through Christ Jesus. And as a result, we respond in kind in the incarnational love to our neighbors, beholding the beauty and the mystery and the necessity of Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, who has come to dwell with us. Amen? There it is. And so here's what I want to say to that end. We have a beautiful opportunity to continue this conversation. If you, many of you know that yesterday we had our remarkable event uh, with Jenny Yang from World Relief on welcoming the stranger. And it was a phenomenal time, but we'll share more about it. But um, Jenny is with us this morning uh, to continue some of that conversation. So if you miss that time, we have an opportunity for her to share a few words with us. Um, Jenny is a lover of Jesus and a lover of his kingdom. In addition to that primary calling upon her life, Uh, Jenny also serves as the Director of Advocacy and Policy uh, for Refugee and Immigration Program uh, at World Relief. In this position, Jenny works uh, with members of Congress, their staffers, and the administration to improve refugee and immigration policy. She's co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate, and we are honored to have her with us today. And so would you join me in welcoming Jenny Yang to the stage? She needs a microphone. Uh, she doesn't have what's called an outside voice like I do. So, uh, Jenny, thank you for, for being here, uh, for, for uh, not only your time yesterday, but continuing your time with us today. And so, uh, so what I'd love just to begin with is just to ask you to share the work you do and kind of what got you into it. Yeah, so it's really a great pleasure for me to be here. I just had the honor yesterday of being at this church for um, an event where uh, we brought in uh, church leaders and others from the community here to talk about what it means to welcome the stranger. So um, I've been with World Belief, which is a Christian humanitarian organization, for almost 
almost 20 years. Um, so when you hear that, you may think I started working there right out of elementary school. <laughs> um, but we're based in Baltimore, Maryland, but we work in 14 countries around the world, working through the local church to alleviate suffering in the name of Jesus. So in overseas in Africa, we work through local churches mostly to alleviate um, the effects of conflict and poverty. And in the United States, we actually work in 20 cities across the U.S. to resettle refugees and serve immigrants. Because when we look at the populations of vulnerability in the United States, we feel like the foreigner, the stranger, the refugee, and these individuals are oftentimes the most vulnerable. So yeah. we've had the honor of walking alongside churches and helping them understand what it means to serve immigrants in our community. And so I've had that honor for, for many years now. That's great. That's great. Um, so, so second question, as Christians specifically, we, we know we're called to love our neighbors. I think it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of uh, base level. Uh, why is the work of welcoming foreign neighbors, the stranger among us, why is, why is that a unique opportunity to show Christian neighborly love? Yeah, so I think oftentimes when we think about immigration, we maybe think about the latest news image we've seen from the le- latest news story about you know, an immigrant or immigration as an issue. But I think it's really important for us as followers of Jesus to really look at this issue, not from a political perspective necessarily, but from a people perspective and ultimately from a spiritual perspective. Um, I grew up in the local church. I I was born and raised in Philadelphia. And um, I was sharing yesterday, I have an affection for the Chiefs because Andy Reid was the Eagles head coach Mm. for many, many years. Um, And so I was cheering for the Chiefs when they were in their Super Bowl because I was cheering for Andy Reid. Um, And so I, I mentioned that because when I was growing up in church, I had read the Bible through and through. I knew my Bible songs, my Bible verses, but I really didn't understand what the Bible had to say at all about immigration. And in fact, I thought it was a completely separate issue. Um, when Rhee was mentioning that a lot of the people in the church are discipled more by the news than by the Bible, it's true, because I think we don't have an understanding of what the Bible says. But when I went back to Scripture and I started reading through from Genesis to Revelation, well, what does the Bible actually say about migration? What I found out is that the whole narrative of Scripture is ultimately a story about people who are constantly on the move. Mm-hmm. And I say that because from Genesis to Revelation, what we see is that people move from one place to another to accomplish God's missional purposes in the world. You know, the first instance of an immigrant I can think of in scripture is Abraham. He was literally called by God to leave his home and to go to another land that God would show him. And the fact that he obeyed God's uh, command to move was a testament to God's faithfulness to him and Sarah. You know, another uh, uh, immigrant in scripture is Joseph. He was literally sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was crossing one border to another as a slave, and it was actually as a migrant that he was noticed by Pharaoh and was placed in a high position in the government, which allowed him to eventually save his people from famine. You know, Ruth was a migrant worker who was gleaning the fields, and it was when Boaz noticed her. And one of the greatest love stories in scripture is actually about someone falling in love with a migrant worker. Mm. But we just shared about Jesus incarnate, and what we don't realize oftentimes maybe about who Jesus was is that he himself was an immigrant. You know, we just recently celebrated Christmas where many of us had our nativity scenes, and we had Mary and Joseph and maybe a donkey or a sheep in that little barn. Um, But we don't have the figure of King Herod, even though he was a central figure in the Christmas story. And I mentioned King Herod because Jesus was born into a time of intense political conflict. In fact, right after he was born, there was an edict out by King Herod that said that all Jewish babies under the age of two were to be killed. And so what happened right after Jesus was born? Mary and Joseph had to take baby Jesus and flee into Egypt in order to save his life. Jesus became a refugee as an infant. 
And so when we follow Jesus, we are followers of a Middle Eastern refugee. Mm -hmm. And that reality allows us to really identify with and really look at refugees of today and really say, these people are experiencing exactly what Jesus experienced. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus commands us in Matthew 25 that we are to welcome the stranger because we are actually welcoming Jesus himself, it's because Jesus identifies with people who are on the move. And in fact, I believe that people are on the move today because God is on the move. You know, at World Belief, we did a study a few years ago where we saw where the refugees that were being resettled by our government in partnership with local churches were coming from. They were coming from places like Somalia and Burma and Iran and Iraq, Places where the church really is non-existent. And if Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations, I believe the nations are coming here. I believe we as a church have an incredible missional opportunity to reach the nations without ever having to leave our own backyards. Many of these people that are coming from nations where the church is non-existent are encountering Christians for the very first time. They're seeing church buildings for the very first time. And it is my incredible hope for the church that we will see individuals made in the image of God who are encountering Christians and really feel a sense of welcome and belonging and not of exclusion and fear. In fact, Jesus says actually the word for hospitality is philozenia. Literally, philo, love, xenia, of the stranger, philozenia. The opposite of a love for the stranger as commanded by scripture is xenophobia. It's a fear of the stranger. Christ calls us to radical hospitality, to a love of the stranger that is really rooted in who he was. And so it was really my hope that as we talk about immigrants and immigration, that we see this as a biblical issue, as a missiological issue, and as something that can really allow us to share the news of Christ with the nations. Um, And I'll just say this, um, J.D. uh, Payne is a missiologist, and he said this, he said something admissionally malignant, when we as a church are willing to make great sacrifices to send missionaries overseas to reach an unreached people group, but we ourselves are not willing to walk across the street. The nations have come into our communities. In Kansas City, I was sharing yesterday that I was looking up really good places to eat. And I saw like four or five barbecue places, which I'm hoping to check out later this afternoon. But after that, the top restaurants in Kansas City were a Thai restaurant and a Vietnamese restaurant and like a Korean barbecue truck. And it is not an accident that this diversity is reflected right here in your communities. And I fear for myself and for the church that the very picture of heaven, which describes all nations worshiping before the throne of Christ, is a picture that we ourselves maybe are not comfortable with right in our own communities. But if God himself says that all the nations will eventually be worshiping before the throne of Christ, then why is that not a picture of what we want to see right here in our communities? And so I really hope and encourage you all that we see the arrival of the nations in our communities as a missiological and a missional opportunity to reach the nations for Christ. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Jenny. Okay, so this question might be a little bit more kind of provocative, um, but the subject of immigration in particular uh, can be easily dismissed as being political or a partisan perspective in the church. What are ways that you would encourage us to use this con- or to have this conversation and pursue this work that doesn't get labeled with that kind of pejorative term of political? Yeah, well, I think when we look at the commandments of Jesus and when Jesus commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, there's no asterisk on that commandment. So it's not... You know, you should only love your neighbor if it's in your national security interest to do so. You know, you should only love your neighbor if it's in your economic interest to do so. We as a church have a very simple commandment from Jesus that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Um, and it can be overly complicated. Sometimes I think, you know, the, the law may get in the way or this may get in the way. And sometimes it does make us feel uncomfortable because there are people speaking different languages with different customs and traditions than maybe what we have. But when we enter into these relationships by serving, by teaching English, by inviting our immigrant neighbors into our homes for, uh, for a meal, these are all things that can radically change their idea of who Christ is. Because many of these newcomers that are coming into our communities, again, have never met a Christian before. And if their understanding of Christ is through who we are as a church, then what are we going to reflect to people whom God has brought into our communities? You know, are we going to reflect a hospitality and a humble attitude that allows us to learn from them as much as we feel like we're giving to them? You know, I live in Baltimore where several years ago I, I started um, uh, mentoring an Iranian refugee family. And I went into their homes every week teaching the young boys English and playing soccer with them and just getting to know this family. And after a while, I realized that after this mom would invite me over for dinner and she would cook like this amazing Iranian feast, which was like some of the best food I've ever had. And as much as I felt like I was giving to this family, in the end, I realized I was receiving from them that the sacrifices that I was making, I, I actually felt like I was receiving from them more. And so I feel like I want to encourage you all as you take this opportunity to get to know your immigrant neighbors and to really engage locally, that this is not just an opportunity to give and to sacrifice, but to receive. You know, I mentioned before that many of the immigrants that are coming into your communities are coming from places that have never heard the gospel before. But I would also say that there are some immigrants that are coming in that are coming from places where the church has been persecuted, where there's persecuted Christians that couldn't practice their faith, and that's why they're coming here. And so even to meet with some of them and to uh, understand how Christ was working in a very restricted environment is an opportunity to receive the gospel from them as well. Mm-hmm. So the sense yeah. of mutuality where we're not just giving but we're receiving is so important. Um, and I'll say this. In Nashville, we work with some churches that were picking up Bhutanese refugees from Bhutan. And in Bhutan, most of the people are predominantly Buddhist. And so after a few weeks, this church showed them the Jesus video, and in one church service, they baptized over 70 Bhutanese refugees in that church service. And after that church service, the Bhutanese refugees became so evangelistic that they told the church, don't pick up the Bhutanese anymore because we're going to pick up our own people. (laughs) And as soon as they would pick them up at the airport, the first thing they would do in their apartment was give them a meal and show them the Jesus video. And so many of these Bhutanese refugees who were predominantly Buddhist became followers of Jesus. And we have seen incredible movements of the Holy Spirit and bring people who originally were from places like Bhutan who had never heard the gospel before, who are now coming into the United States of America, a place of freedom and safety, and encountering Christ for the very first time. And so I hope that we as a church community can push back the news rhetoric, can push back this narrative, and really see, well, what is it that God is doing in the movement of people? And really understanding that the movement of people today is really a continuation of the movement of people that we saw throughout Scripture as well. That's amazing, Jenny. Well, I mean, we could keep having this conversation, and I, and I, uh, what I want to just suggest are some uh, possible next steps for us. Um, uh, Jenny co-wrote uh, a remarkable book with Matthew Sorens called uh, Welcoming the Stranger. And so there's some copies at our welcome table if you want to check out or look at. Uh, we'd love to encourage you to, to, to grab that resource. In addition to that, uh, there's some flyers that the Evangelical Immigration Tables provided, uh, or a, a bookmark, rather, 
that has a 40-day scripture and prayer guide uh, that are available at our welcome table. Feel free to grab one of those as well. And then there's kind of a new uh, coalition group that we formed uh, between um, some people at Christ Community and one of our ministry partners, Mission Adelante, called I Was a Stranger KC. And there's some flyers as well out at the lobby. Uh, It's a group that's kind of seeking to, uh, through a Christian biblical framework, uh, seek to love and care for and advocate for our immigrant and refugee neighbors. So if you'd like to learn more about that, join our mailing list, you can do so. Uh, And then also, we'll we'll share more information, but in in February, starting February 1st, we're offering a six-week class uh, continuing this conversation uh, around welcoming the stranger. And so more information about that to come. You can check it out on our website. But uh, but Jenny, again, thank you for your time, for your heart, for your work. Uh, Would you join me in just kind of saying thank you to Jenny Yang? (laughs) 